The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. From the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 to 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and they were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, Kurt. Well, I'm grateful to um, be able to talk about this passage with you. And uh, we're actually almost done with the book of Acts. There are, um, if you have a Bible or maybe familiar with Acts, there are actually quite a few chapters after this one. Um, but we are going to actually, for um, where we're ending our series and what we're doing with Acts, going to end it with uh, chapter 18. So we'll do uh, some of it today and finish it next week and then move on into Palm Sunday and Easter. Um, and so uh, this, you know, living in Nashville and especially you, know, you songwriters and musicians here or people who appreciate songwriting, uh, really enjoy the, not just the, the parts of music that we get to enjoy here, which is really awesome. Uh, the venues, there's music everywhere, but you really kind of can get into the depth of it to the degree you want to. Uh, if you want to study and learn the lyrics and hear more and get into that, but it can be a tough place. Uh, ask any of the musicians sitting up here. Uh, being in Nashville can be not just a tough place to uh, be a musician, but to actually play music at times. Uh, often uh, I've heard musicians say that playing in Nashville, you can have a crowd of people who are kind of like this listening, like, are you good enough for me to listen to you? Um, and, uh, and there are lots of those things. Well, one of the songs that's come out recently by uh, the great Chris Stapleton, who many of us may love and enjoy, uh, it was actually a pretty tough one. It's called Nashville. And I don't know if you've heard this song or, or uh, really paid attention to the lyrics, but it, it kind of made me go, ouch. And I don't even have a, a real depth into the uh, uh, songwriting world. But listen to what he says. I met you when I had a dream, not so long ago it seems. 
We closed down a million bars. Yeah, you and me, we've come so far. You showed me how to write a song, and we wrote some right, and we wrote some wrong. I was down and out, and you let me in. At times, you were my only friend. And listen to the chorus. So long, Nashville. You can't have what's left of me. And as far as I can tell, it's high time I wish you well. You built me up, you set me free, and you tore me down, my tore down my memories. So you be you, and I'll be me. So long, Nashville, Tennessee. Tell you what, when I heard that song, I thought, man. And you can see why I said outs. I'm like, okay, you kind of feel a little bit personal, even though I'm not, it's not like I have a whole lot of connection with Chris Stapleton, but it, it makes you go, wow. I mean, what? It, it makes you ask the question, kind of like you do after every Taylor Swift song about a boy. You're like, okay, who's she destroying now? Um, what, what, is, what were the tension and difficulties and opposition? that Chris Stapleton was really hitting as he was here. Because, you know, yeah, it's probably part of the city. It's not just the city, but it's the people in it. It's probably also his industry. But something about it, and I actually don't know if he still lives here or not. I mean, that's pretty, pretty in your face. So long, Nashville, Tennessee. What kind of tension and difficulty do you have to hit to kind of just say that? I'm done. Many of us have, may have felt that. Um, some people may have felt that about the city. And usually when we say, gosh, Nashville's just getting so big. All these people are moving here. It's becoming like this. We say those kind of things. It's not just that we see it on a larger 30,000 foot view and we're just making comments. It's also that we've had some run-ins of things where it's Im impacted us negatively, be it people, be it our work, be it traffic, be it something more personal, and then we just throw it global. The point is, though, there's some tension here. And this passage, as we've been looking with the book of Acts, oftentimes comes with a tension, a difficulty. Acts is a book, if you're unfamiliar with it, and you only get to hear me say this a couple more times, but it was written by Luke, the, who wrote the gospel, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts was his volume two. Luke, the gospel, was his volume one. And when he wrote Acts, the volume two, it was about how did the gospel good news break out from Jerusalem into the rest of the world? How did it go? And you can see it. We've seen myriad of different places, cities, people. And oftentimes when it brings up these people, like these names you read in here, it's for us to say, oh, he really took his time. Luke was an interviewer. He wanted you to know these are real people, real places, real opposition even that goes into this. And Paul in this moment is hitting a, a, a loggerhead. He's gone to a number of cities where maybe there's been more openness Maybe it's been less opposition, and he's kind of coming to a city, and you can actually read this in his letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, to a city called Corinth, where he hits some opposition, and you see his frustration and difficulty. You actually see it, and we'll read some of it, even in Corinthians, of his fear, his trembling, his difficulty. And what would Paul do? At first, he was like, ah, I'm going to shake it off. He shook his garments, you know. <laughs> we'll talk a little bit more about that, what that signifies. But he, it looks like he's just giving up on him and taking off. But actually what he, he's doing is a lot more gospel-centered than that. And it really begs the question for us as a church, 
as the people and even beautifully with new members up front, what does it look like for us to be the ones that carry the good news of Jesus and not just kind of wash our hands of the city, the people, and one of our last points is even God himself. Because really the ultimate question it comes back to is that Paul may be asking that we don't read in here, but you can kind of see it as, God, what are you doing? What, What are you up to? I mean, I come to this city, you do this, and you read it, and you know he's doing that because at the end, God has to give him a little vision of saying, don't give up, don't leave, keep preaching the gospel. He doesn't say what's going to happen. He just says, there's more people in the city that I'm going to reach. So how do we become faithful lovers of our city, of the people, and ultimately faithful to the Lord who loves us? In that. So we're going to look at three things in this. We're going to look at three things, the city, the people, and the Lord. Pretty easy, huh? The city, the people, and the Lord. You know, Corinth um, was a city, it was about 46 miles west of Athens. That's where we were last. It's funny, when you read the Bible and you read passages, you kind of think things just go up, 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 and happen like right next to each other. But think about that. He was in Athens in chapter 17 and then travels to Corinth, 46 miles. That's a long way. He didn't have the easy, uh, you know, system that we have or high traffic, you know, cars that you can just take off. 46 miles would take a while. So there's time in between there and people. And it was also uh, a city that was rebuilt not too long before Jesus' time. In 44 BC, Corinth was rebuilt by Julius Caesar himself. So it became a very prominent city. In fact, it lay on an isthmus, which is a land bridge between two major continents. And so two major seas lie on either side. So where Athens was an intellectual center that had like Socrates and Plato and all these people coming to talk, Corinth was a commercial center. Everything came through Corinth, everything. It was the trade capital. So it had a lot to it. But it was also known as an incredibly proud and even promiscuous city. And you can read a lot about that in the letters to uh, the Corinthian church about what does it look like to live differently. But it says here in verse four that when he went, and this often happened, when he went, he went to the synagogue first to preach to those who would either be Jewish or called God-fearers, who were Greeks who kind of took on the Jewish life, because they were the ones first who he would say, here's the gospel, here's Jesus who came to complete what you understand in the Jewish mindset. And what he met was severe opposition. He met difficulty. And living in that city, it would be easy for him. And, and you get, if, if you read this passage and you read the Corinthian letters and you read this, you read of this pride and you read of this this kind of city. And listen to what he says. I want to read just a, a section of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. And this will kind of tell you a little bit. Now, imagine writing a letter to a church, and Paul was very effusive. Now, we think of Paul's stodgy, you know, guy. He was, his heart was in all of his writing. Listen to this. Speaking of a song. I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Notice what he says twice in there. He says a couple things. First, he talks about his own fear and trembling. He's honest about what that city meant to him and did to him. That we see him shaking off his garments, but really there's a lot more behind that. There was a fear. Here's this large city. He's exhausted. He's trying to, to bring the gospel and it's just met with opposition. But he realizes something too about Corinth is that the power and pride that they have is not what they need to hear puffed up say, the gospel can make you stronger. It can actually organize your day better. It can actually make you a better commercial trader. You know what he does? He brings in the reality that the cross of Christ is foolishness for the Greeks and a stumbling block for the Jews. To live in weakness and powerlessness. Okay, if there's anything that is not what we want to do, it would be those things. <laughs> that when we talk about the thing hanging right behind me, the cross of Christ, yes, you can look up at it, it's okay, it's right there. That symbol was not something that they would hang up in a, in a synagogue or a church or any sort of house church. That was a symbol of weakness, of powerlessness, of foolishness. For a Greek who really believed in sophistication, thinking, remember Athens even, the, the way that they thought through things, the cross was, why in the world would Jesus come and take up the cross, which is for thieves, and, and die for our sins? That, makes, that seems foolish. There's no reason for that. They, they reflected on wisdom and the cross made no sense. It didn't, it went down. It didn't make you wiser, did it? Seemed like it made you less. And for the Jews, it was a stumbling block because they wanted signs and pragmatism. They wanted results. The cross was weakness. And here's what's interesting. What both of them didn't understand is that, yes, it talked about weakness, but it gave you an advocate. It, in your powerlessness, and that's one of the most difficult things for us, I think, is when we talk about weakness and foolishness, it makes us look like we're so less, but we feel like, where, where am I loved? Where am I taken care of? Who stands in my stead? Who speaks on my behalf? Who stands up for me? I'll tell you what, tomorrow, and for those of you that know this story, is a year since our home flooded. A year. Since I've sent an email and said, we cannot have church in the morning. This was on a Sunday, it was on a Saturday. <clears throat> and I waited out. Megan was uh, in, in the front carrying our dog. Jake, my son, was walking, and I was holding Cole, who just was in here sitting with me. And the water was up to here on me, up to my wife's waist, raging through our backyard as we waited 50 yards through our backyard at one in the morning with lightning flashing and rain going on. And you know what is crazy? We have been fighting to get back in our home and still have not even gotten to break ground yet. 
because we have been fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. Why am I telling you this story? Because I will tell you, I have not learned more. And maybe this is one of those things like, what is God teaching you? I hate that question. What's God teaching you right now? I'm like, I don't know that I'm going to rip my hair out. But it, you know what it is teaching me? That I have been incredible. I've never felt more powerless and more weak than I have this entire year. I have done everything I can to fight for us to not only get out of our home safely, but also for, for Megan and I to fight back into our home and nothing moves. And you know what I've realized? It's because we have, have not had an advocate. And good news is there are things moving just to tell you. But you know what's so radically different about the gospel? Is to feel the depth of your powerlessness and weakness and to live out of that. And yet then to know you have an advocate changes the game completely. That's what the gospel is. See, the good news is, is it's a stumbling block and it's also offensive because we want to be our own advocate. And at every turn, we can't. There's no amount of work or effort or way we could put our shoulder down to move it forward. And that was the name of the game in Corinth. You made a name for yourself. That's really what it was. And Paul realized that if they want to really understand what it means to live in Jesus, you can't live as your own advocate. You have to live in the one who is your advocate. And to the depth that you understand your powerlessness and weakness, which is so difficult. Think about any of those places that you may have felt that for an instant. Maybe it's with a child or a friend who's ill or spouse who's ill or some sort of job loss or something that where you, you just were out of control completely. It, you, you could not you, you had no amount of agency to move the ball forward. Any of that. And yet God provides an advocate to move it forward in leaps and bounds. It is a game changer to know that that is the good news of the gospel because you can't move it forward like you think you can. And that is a glorious thing. That is the gospel. That's the good news he brings to the city. <clears throat> and why he keeps saying, don't leave. Why, why he has to encourage Paul, don't leave. Because who feels their weakness? Paul does. And don't you know, in between these lines, Paul's like, <clears throat> God, I feel weak. What am I supposed to do? But that's the point. W what if... Can I just say this? And maybe, you know what? I may camp out on this one point for the whole sermon. What if, though, our entire life is to describe the humility and weakness of Jesus, and that is enough to show the beauty of the gospel to the entire city of Nashville? What if it is that? What if it is more than us showing that we've become the most successful this, or we have this house, we have everything in order. What if it is showing and living out of the place that is the most difficult, but knowing that we have the greatest advocate speaking on our behalf? What if that is the good news of the gospel? 
And guess what? It is. <laughs> and I will tell you as your friend and pastor who speaks up here for the last year, I've been beaten over the head with that. And I've missed it often, if not most of the time. For us to take up that good news of Jesus. And then he begins to talk about the people there. There's an edict, it says, that Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. See, it's not just a city at 30,000 feet. It comes down to the faces that when Luke writes these names, it's people that Paul sees face to face. And there was an edict, apparently, that in Rome, because of the way that in the synagogues that the Jew, Jewish people were fighting against or causing disturbances with the Christians there, that they were like, just, get, just leave. They just said, get out. And so Claudius made them leave. And so many of them scattered throughout. One of the places many of them came was to Corinth. And so this is why you find Paul in the synagogue and it says he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks because all the Jews went there and began to mingle and be a part of with the Greeks. And then it says here that when he did this, when Silas and Timothy arrived, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. Now notice that arrangement. Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, we know that's not necessarily true and, and completely because one, he relocates right next door to the synagogue. And two, the leader of the synagogue who is Jewish becomes a Christian. So there are Jewish people who do become Christians in this. <clears throat> but what is he saying? He's feeling the tension of complete opposition. He's feeling one of the most difficult things that I think we could feel about someone that we love. And he, you know what? Paul writes in a lot of his letters, including Romans, how much he loves his people because Paul was Jewish. And yet he was called to preach to the Gentiles. But this is the tension. There is nothing more difficult than to want something for someone than they want it themselves. I mean, that is a key thing. In life. There is nothing. That is so hard. And particularly when it comes to the good news of Christ. To want something more for someone than they want. To know someone is dealing with a specific addiction. And that you want them to come to health. And yet they are unwilling and don't want that. When you see a, something, a behavior in your child or in a friend and, and you want to change, you even want to say something, but you don't know how to say it. You don't know what to phrase. Paul reaches a point where he wants so much for them to come to faith. He shakes his garments. It's actually a, a line that he quotes from Ezekiel, Old Testament book, Ezekiel 33. And what he's saying is, he's saying, it's not on my hands. Your responsibility is in your hands. I love you, but I will not. And I cannot hold the responsibility for you. Think of a deep tension and love he has for them. And yet, what does God do to encourage him? He brings people to him. Listen to what Tim Keller said this, and he, he's a 
a pastor, if you're unfamiliar with him, he's a pastor from New York, uh, incredible thinker. <clears> has <throat> taught me more probably about how to uh, think about these kind of things. But he talks about this, and when he uses the word defeater, he's talking about people who, when they think about Christianity, they think, I don't want to do it because it defeats their defeater, this mind. So when you say Christian to somebody, they may think, oh, well, they're this, 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 and this, and they have these issues against it. That's what he means when he says defeater. That's what he says. The holder of a defeater holds it as much for social and personal reasons than for just even theoretical or rational ones. Since they didn't come into their position mainly by argument, they can't be removed from it mainly by argument. Think about that for a moment. It's a beautifully put thing is that many of us think, okay, if I have the right word, if I have the killer sentence or quote from somebody or something, it's going to launch right into them and they're just going to say, I am a Christian. But what he's saying is argument didn't bring them in. Argument's not going to bring them out. So what does Paul do here? This is what's amazing. It says, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. And I think Luke wants us to see the humor and beauty of God's work in that. That where does God position and relocate Paul? Not far away, not to say, I'm done with it and run away. But even probably to the chagrin of even those in the synagogue, he literally is right next door and still preaching. And the Lord is saying, I'm not far from you. What is one of the phrases that is said over and over in the New Testament? It is one where, where whomever's preaching, they'll say, God of heaven and earth is not far from you. Jesus will say this often. Many of the New Testament writers, God is not far from you. And what he's saying when he says that is that the Lord is not far in a sense of like, you can't reach him or he's not, he can't get to you. But that he's right there. He's near. Come to him. He appeals to us as humans, as Paul's to preach. And many were baptized, and you can read about it. You can read about the baptisms in 1 Corinthians. And it says here in, in this as well. I love what Blaise Pascal, another author, said. He said, men despise religion. They'll hate it and are afraid it may be true. But the cure for this is to first show them that religion is not contrary to reason but is worthy of reverence and respect. Next, make it attractive. Good men wish it were true. And then third, show that it is. What is Paul doing now? Relocating right next to the synagogue. Myriads of people, even, who is it? Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Think about it. He walks out his door of the synagogue and goes right next door and starts worshiping with Paul. Do you see the humor in this? Unbelievable. But God is at work, and yet all the while building it up. And here, here's what I think is the third thing. We've talked about the city. We've talked about the people. But where this question gets to the root of in us that's most difficult is the Lord. 
Because I think when we hit these places, it's not, it's maybe not even the phrase we say, but it's one we probably should, is God, what are you up to? What are you doing? Do you know how many times I've said that in just this year alone? More or less over a period of my life as a Christian. Many of you have said that or maybe feel like, should I say that? When you've had many, many in this room have had a loved one die in the last year. So many. And I know that that question has come to the forefront whether you are afraid to say it or not. And don't you know that's what Paul was feeling? Don't you know he was struggling with that? When he's like, the responsibility is on you, he just goes, he's like, God, what are you doing? Why, why do we know this? Because God himself in verse 9 through 11 says, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Remember what he said in Corinthians, I was came to you in fear and trembling. Twice, he had to write it. And no one will attack you or harm you. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you or harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, a year and a half, teaching the word of God. He needed God to remind him, to encourage him. Because he felt like, God, where, what are you doing? I'm preaching. See, you know what happened most of the time when he preached and there was opposition, he, would, he, felt, he realized, he was like, they're not going to take it. I'm going to move on to the next city. God said, no. He said, uh-uh, you stay here. Which made it how much more difficult for him to continue preaching over and over. And here's what I really want to encourage you with this is that we need, if you don't struggle with who the Lord is and asking the question, what are you up to, God? <clears throat> you need to be okay saying that. Here's what, here's what I mean. Paul is not at the end of his rope or struggling because he's lost his faith. He's struggling because he's in a relationship. And there is nothing more beautiful than for you to actually bring your real heart to the Lord, as you see from the pages of Genesis, even up to Acts and beyond, the over and over, myriads of women and men in the Bible who bring their real heart, even in, the, in Samuel, before David, before David is born in that first book, there's a woman named Hannah who is barren and cannot have children. Think about where she's at. She is over and over and even says in that passage in 1 Samuel, God, what are you doing? She comes to the, the church at that time, the synagogue, the temple, place of worship, to talk to God about it. And she cries out loud so much that the person who's the pastor there thinks she's drunk. And he gets rebuked for it, basically. Because God says, bring your heart to me. Real heart depth difficulty before the Lord. Discouragement that we have all felt is not ungodly. It means when you, the, the way you deal with it is in a relationship, isn't it? 
If it drives you to apathy, then that's a scary thing. Because many of us say, well, I can't tell God this. I can't. We've grown up in maybe ways where maybe you heard from a pastor or somebody else. Don't say that then. But notice what Paul is doing. He is being encouraged in the depths that he needed to. Fear and trembling. Look, this table is a reminder of something enormous. Many of us may think, and we've maybe even hit the part of saying, has God forsaken me? Like, I've cried out to him so long and been in such a a lengthy period of discouragement that there are moments that you just go, has he just kind of forgotten me? Do you know how many Psalms say that? Do you know how many passages in the Bible? There's an entire book called Lamentations. that says it's okay to grieve. It's okay to grieve about your relationships here, what's going on. It's okay. We, at some point as a people, we're going to have to process how the last two and a half to three years have, have completely annihilated our emotional tanks. And I'll tell you what, the greatest resource of that is in this room. It's the church processing the good news of Jesus with a good God who loves us. And what does he say to Paul? I am with you. He didn't tell him names. He just says, just know I'm with you. Keep, keep preaching. And you know how we taste and see that he hasn't forsaken us? Who did he forsake? He forsake his own son. He forsook him. There's only one person in the Bible that could say that with all integrity. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because there's only one man who had the full weight of God's love and attention and with, and then also felt at one moment his back so that we would never have to feel that. Yes, we can feel it, But you know the reality of it? When you're in a relationship with someone, you can feel something, but know that they're still there. The beauty of God is he never leaves us, nor forsakes us. Because we taste the one that he forsook. So that we can be at this table and never fear that he is away from us. Bring your discouragement to this table. Bring your real heart to this table. And let your heart and mind and spirit be, rejoice again, no matter if it's even hard to, because you're tasting the deepest love of your soul and life in Christ. Amen. Let's stand together now.